When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Podcast Network. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Jack Farley. It is Wednesday, October 6th. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Darius Dale of 42 Macro. Darius, welcome to the Daily Briefing. What it do, Jack? What it do? Well, it's a, it's a weird day we had today, Darius. We, today broke out uh, very bearish, the S&P very down, but we had a little bit of a whipsaw rally uh, into the afternoon, now uh, closing up about 40 basis points on the S&P 500. Bonds barely budged, and you had some uh, excesses of the commodity complex, uh, particularly in natural gas, shed off there. Uh, and We had a uh, uh, private sector employment uh, uh, increased 568,000 for the month of September. That was according to the ADP uh, economic report released today. This was above the 425,000 that was expected. And also Bitcoin roared higher uh, um, above 55,000, an increase of about eight or 9%. So Darius, those are sort of the stories of the day. But today I wanna go a lot deeper with you because you've been doing some phenomenal work at 42 Macro. You and I were having a pre-interview before and you were kind of blowing my mind with your quantitative framework. So. Just, I think the last daily briefing we did was two weeks ago. Walk us uh, what you've seen over those past two weeks that's changed and what has uh, remained the same. Yeah, I would say the biggest thing that's sort of changed uh, are, are twofold, one to the positive side, and then you could sort of interpret it also negatively. So I'll start with the positive side because I went over this last week. You're seeing a real breakout in pro-cyclical sectors and style factors, high beta, high debt, value, things of that nature, relative to their defensive counterparts. Um, you know, I, I sort of liken this period to the sort of second correction we saw last fall, which is the October correction. You know, I think it was down about 9%, the S&P 500, but it was very different than the September correction that we saw that was a little bit closer to 10% down. The reason it was different is because you saw the, the pattern shift in terms of the market leadership, and the market leadership very much went pro-cyclical ahead of, you know, the vaccine news, ahead of, you know, the the, 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 um, the resolution we saw um, with respect to the election. And so we're seeing similar dynamics play out now, and that may be presaging a very positive um, you know, Q4 with respect to a developing mini reflation trade. Now, I say that to say this. Another thing that's occurred you know, since we last touched base is the fact that the market is actually quite vulnerable for a material drawdown. Um, we can unpack that, what I just said there, but um, you got to go all the way back to sort of mid-February of this year where the market had this kind of a down risk, but I would argue it's probably a little bit more risky now be just given the dynamics with respect to the forward outlook for growth and the forward outlook for inflation or the confusion therein. Break us down why you see it that the market uh, is more vulnerable than it's been since February, which for you is quite a statement. You, In your note today, you wrote you wrote of a bearish trifecta of market indicators. What are those three indicators? Yeah, so the, the, there's, there's a few ways that we have a myriad of quantitative tools of 42 macro, and there's sort of, there's two types of there's two types of tools we use to sort of, you know, kind of raise cash. One, when, you know, the overall conviction score of our of our global macro risk matrix 
you know, when we're in Goldilocks or inflation, which are risk on regimes, when that's at a really elevated percentile, telling you that everybody's fully in the kiddie pool with respect to betting on a very positive outcome. So you should take some chips off the table. Uh, number two, we have what we call our cost asset correction risk indicator. Um, you know, that's just the combined probabilities of the two risk off regimes in our framework. And when that those combined probabilities get to a very low state, it's telling you that there's way too much complacency in asset markets. So that's how you book gains when things are really positive. When things are not so positive and it's not as obvious, you know, you, we tend to rely on, on sort of things that like the Bloomberg dollar index, high yield credit spreads, and the VVX VIX ratio. Those are the bearish trifectas. When the dollar index goes bullish, BAMS, it goes bullish on our volatility adjusted momentum signal. When high yield OAS goes bullish on our volatility adjusted momentum signal, and the VVX VIX ratio goes bearish on our volatility adjusted momentum signal. When you see all three of those things line up together, it's typically a, a sign that you know big market risk is developing. So uh, we now have two of those strings, uh, two of those three things occurring now, with high yield being the lone exception. Okay, so the former two make sense. So, oh wait, sorry. What, when you said high yield is the exception, what did you mean? High yield uh, option adjusted credit spreads on high yield. Um, those are still, you know, in a neutral state right now. If they broke out to bullish, that's telling you that the credit market is seeing a, a dissipation of the forward growth outlook and/or the forward liquidity outlook and/or both, depending on the speed of the move. Okay, so so the dollar uh, spiking that makes sense when the dollar spikes, typically seen as a uh, risk off event because. The dollar is a safe haven. So many debts are denominated in dollars. Mm -hmm. Setting aside the high yield credit spread for a moment, tell us about the VVIX to VIX ratio. The VIX being, uh, you know, a measure of 30-day implied volatility on options for the S&P 500, and the VVIX being the vol of vol or the rate of change of uh, that VIX itself. Why is the? And I really don't understand this. So please walk me through it and the audience as well. Why is the VIX, the VVIX to VIX ratio important, and what is the signaling? Yeah, so the reason it's important is because it tends to break down pretty consistently uh, into and through uh, big market declines. And the reason and the reason we look at it on a ratio basis is because you know it's it's hard to identify ex ante what the terminal level of the VIX should be in any given business cycle or any given you know rate of change growth cycle. You know the reality is they're all different in duration, they're all different in amplitude, and so sometimes the VIX bottoms at nine like it did in 2017 or eight. You know sometimes the VIX bottoms at ten, sometimes it bottoms at twelve. You know, the reality is we never really know where the VIX is going to bottom. And so we use the VVIX VIX ratio as an indicator of, uh, you know, creating a, a narrower range of probable outcomes that allows us as investors to say, hey, the state changed, something changed. And what you can very clearly see in this chart is that, hey, the state changes. You've been grinding higher, grinding higher, grinding higher throughout the duration of this bull market. And now that's something's changed. It's very clearly changed. And so the reality is uh, we have to interpret that as, as investors. As a bearish signal, you go back to uh, Balmageddon, you go back to Q418, you obviously go back to uh, to last winter, and you know the bearish brands breakdown of the VIX fixed ratio was a leading indicator for more pain to come for investors. Now that's not to say that every red bar you're going to see in this chart is a uh, bearish warning sign, but obviously this is one of a myriad of tools we look at that may uh, may or may not signal time to head for the hills. This is definitely a pretty esoteric, hard to understand indicator. So if you're watching this at home and you have a few, uh, you know, some questions, ask us questions. You know, don't just ask us, oh, what do you think of this stock? What do you think of that thing? Like, ask us. You know, Darius Jack, Darius said something. What did he mean by that? Um, we definitely mm -hmm. want to get into it. Uh, Darius, one thing you said that makes me uh, think of this is that volatility is relative. You know, volatility can be expensive at nine and it can be cheap at forty. Such as like in March of, uh, you know, March second of uh, uh, 2020. Volatility at 30 was 
was uh, cheap. It, you know, you, you were lucky to get in at 30 because there's oh. so much being priced. And that's why you measure it. And I, I can't fully wrap my head around VVIX to VIX. But what I do understand is you measure implied volatility relative to realized volatility. It's the spread that matters, not the absolute level. Explain why that's so important. And then we can get into uh, some of the dispersion analysis that you've done, which is indicating some very interesting things. Yeah, no, great, great, great call out. So uh, if you pull up that chart, uh, the scatter plot chart that we tend to tweet out from time to time, this shows our volatility risk premium analysis. Um, you know, I don't want to get too far into the details on <laughs> the live broadcast, but the y-axis just basically shows if, 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 if volatility is being overpriced or underpriced relative to the recent trend and realized volatility. When you're on the left side or the right side of the axis, you're on the left side, it means you haven't corrected yet. You're on the right side of the axis, it means you have corrected yet. And so, you know, typically what we've seen, you know, particularly in and around these OPEX cycles, because you go back to May, we've had uh, realized volatility like in and around each of the OPEX cycles really since the end. And, and you can make the case we've seen that quite frequently since, um, you know, since really 2018, 2019, but specifically in this year. You know, this the median in terms of where the dots are on this y-axis here, that's been right around 40 to 50 percent on the other side of these sort of realized volatility spikes in and around OPEX. Well, this is a very different setup now because it, the, the, the median ratio or the median uh, you know, sort of volatility risk premium in this in this analysis is only 17 percent. It's bounced around between sort of nine and 20 percent in the last couple of weeks. And it's telling you that investor consensus is really not sort of too worried about the terminal downside in this correction. They're effectively making the case that, hey, look, I don't really see really see a need to rush into to buying more near term protection because we don't think that. Uh, this this five percent uh, drawdown that we're seeing in stocks off the highs uh, is going to be much worse than anytime soon. So that to me is a signal that at the margin, investor consensus is is pretty nervous, and which tells me the vulnerability in all this. It tells you that if something actually does get really worse in the near term, and obviously I think that the McConnell news is is making it less likely that things get near, near worse in the near term. If things do get worse in the near term, you're going to see people rush for protection. They're going to buy more puts, and that the the buying that rush for protection forces the dealer network to go short the underlying and delta hedge, and that's how market uh, cycles feed on themselves to the downside. So we're, the risk of that occurring is about as high as it's been in, in quite some time. And the reason that is, Darius, correct me if I'm wrong, is because they don't own a lot of protection now. The dots historically have been a lot higher in this chart on the y-axis, meaning that people were paying a premium for implied volatility relative to realized volatility. But now they're not, they're not making, you're not buying as much insurance. They're not buying these as many put contracts, and they're not, um, they're actually, they're actually net long the S&P 500 futures contract, which can, we can put that, uh, we can show that chart later. Um, so in every single sense, they are, they're kind of a little bit soft bellied. They're not as toughened as they have been historically. Yeah. And I, and I think it's a, a natural response, right, to like getting fleeced by the Dillon network all year. It's like, are all spikes, people rush to overpay for protection, and then the market gets squeezed higher. And that's kind of been the case you know, that's what we've been seeing really all, 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 you know, throughout the spring and summer and into the fall of this year. Well, that pattern has really dissipated in my, and it's my interpretation. Maybe I have the wrong interpretation, but I think people are just tired of watching that pattern go on. And, you know, the, you don't want to be the guy who shorts the market at the lows only to get squeezed out of your shorts and out of your put exposure. And so I think people are sort of getting wise to that, that very consistent pattern. And they're, unwilling to say, hey, this market is going to go down more than 5% in the near term. Now, it may or may not go down more five, more than 5% in the near term. All we're really calling out is the vulnerability associated with the fact that people aren't betting on that outcome. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. 
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to the daily briefing. Let's get back to top analysis of today's markets. Darius, now let's put up a chart that's so fascinating. It is essentially shows what has worked and what has not worked over the past month. You can see at the top that energy is leading the charge, whereas uh, at, at the bottom is uh, least shorted stocks, real estate uh, such as the REITs index, the S&P 500 healthcare sector index, very defensive indices. So people uh, are going out of defensive things and going into full risk on things like energy, Netflix, Tesla. What does this indicate to you? Yeah, it's a great question. So I'll take a step back and explain the chart. The chart is showing month over month sharp ratios for 50 different U.S. equity sectors and style factors. The upper quintile and the lower quintile are represented in the chart as a proxy for, you know, what's the active hedge fund management industry flowing into and flowing out of at the margins? Um, you think about your pod shops like your Citadels, your 0.72s, those kinds of funds. What are they flowing into and out of at the margins? And really since the beginning of June all the way through like maybe two and a half weeks ago, this chart was completely reversed in terms of, you know, 80, 90 to 100% of the upper quintile constituents were very clearly defensive, low beta, you know, you know mega cap thing, you know, it was very defensive. And the, the, the lower quintile composition, again, from June to basically two and a half weeks ago, was very clearly cyclical. Well, the chart basically flipped on itself. You look at the composition of the upper quintile, it's like energy, financials, high beta, most shorted high debt, least shorted high debt, mid cap value, most shorted value, least shorted high beta. And so this is telling you that the market and, and those kind that style of investor is doing one of two things. They're either pro-cyclically trying to flow assets into under-owned, you know, real economy type exposures in anticipation of a Q4 reflation trade that should be that should coincide with a bounce in growth both domestically and globally on the other side of Delta, or which I think is a more vulnerable, more, more negative point for the market in terms of the near-term outlook, or they're just taking down their entire gross exposure by selling longs and covering shorts. And that's why you see the shorts, uh, the things that were formerly shorted go up, and you see the things that were um, were obviously very crowded long exposures go down with very, very high um, sharp ratios to the downside. That's indicative of flows, not necessarily just price change. Yeah. Um, one possible analogy, Darius, is if it's sort of an army that's uh, holding a castle, it's your puts and your short S&P 500 futures are hedges. They're sort of the guards at, at the gates. And ever since COVID, there have been a lot of guards at the gates because investors are very afraid. These charts that you've shown ha have illustrated that there are fewer, few, more and more guards are being called back from the gates defense, indicating that a sort of storming of the Bastille. Uh, it's not that the likelihood of it increases, it's that maybe, maybe it does, but it's also that the violence of it does, if, if it does happen, because there's no one to protect the enemy from coming over the wall. Yeah, no, that's a great analogy. And I'll simplify it even further. I mean, markets don't crash when people have a bunch of shorts on and they're overpaying for near-term protection. They crash when people get out of those shorts and they, they stop buying puts. You know, when, when, the, when the hedges come off, that's when you catalyze and that's when you open up the possibility for, you know, further bigger declines in, in, in the stock market and credit markets and, and really risk assets broadly. So, you know, we're not saying this is a indicative of, the, okay, the market's about to crash. We're saying the probability that the market could crash is as high as it's been in a really long time as a function of investors having taken off these hedges. Um, you go to the CFTC data that you, you highlighted earlier, you alluded to earlier. You know, we swung from a net short position 
um, of minus 39,000 contracts to a net long position of uh, 81,000 contracts in a matter of weeks. And so people clearly, the investor consensus, this is speculative net length, this is hedge fund um, activity here. And so the hedge fund community clearly went from net short to net long. And to me, it's not, is that, it, it may be a function of them actually getting more positive on the market, or just maybe a function of them taking down gross exposure by selling their longs and covering shorts. So, you know, we'll find out in a few weeks. There's, it's, that's been great getting on uh, dealer positioning and just the sort of positioning of the market. Uh, before we get into uh, questions, which thank you everyone to what you've submitted phenomenal questions, which I'll ask to Darius later. Let's just talk about macro for a little bit second. Uh, uh, why is it that you see inflation as a rising concern? Why is it that the inflation break-even rate entailed within the uh, tips tips yield? Why is it that gotten up? Why is the market pricing in higher inflation? And is this a risk to to asset prices? Yeah, it's definitely a risk to asset prices. So if you you know you go back to our grid framework, you have Goldilocks, reflation, inflation, and deflation. You know those are the four economic states that the uh, the economy can be in, and therefore those are the four states that asset markets can be trying to price in. And right now, what we've seen is like really since you know kind of the beginning of July. You know, we've seen this sort of jumbledness, this kind of what we would call like grid zero with respect to, you know, the dominant market regime or the market regime probabilities associated with those outcomes. This is a very different state than we've been really since like the beginning of Q4 of 18 to 19. You know, it was a very clear and obvious reflation trade starting in October of 19 that gave way to a very clear and obvious deflation trade starting at the end of January of 2020. Uh, or, yeah, and then the very gave way to a very clear and obvious Goldilocks trade you know, starting in the spring of 2020. And then that gave way to a very clear and obvious reflation trade, you know, starting in November of 2020. And ultimately, we've that's given way to a what has become the least clear and least obvious sort of trade we've seen, you know, going back for quite some time. And part of the reason for that, you know, I've discussed this in, in recent shows, is the fact that the deltas in the economy here in Q4 specifically, from like September, you know, from Q3 to Q4 in the second half of year, they're, they're slowing down. The, the, the second, the size of the second derivatives have slowed down. They're following the, de the delta negative uh, third derivatives that we've seen for growth and inflation for quite some time. And so what it really means is that, hey, the economy, the range of probable outcomes with respect to the rate of change of growth, with respect to the rate of change of inflation is quite wide because it means each of those regimes is, is reasonably probable and will be for the next few months. So this is why incremental inflation is such a real key, uh, key, key catalyst for the market here. If we see an energy type crisis right now, all it's going to do is further cement the fact that the economy could spill into a stagflationary impulse. And more importantly, it's going to take this red line in the chart and keep and take it higher and keep it high. And if it goes higher and stays high, that's going to be a clear risk off signal for asset markets, just according to our back test. And when you say Delta Darius, you're referring not to the COVID variant, but you're referring to the rate of change. Right? Rate of change, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Oh, yeah. Um, Darius, by the way, I, I, I have a nickname for you. Because, you're, you because you play above the rim at such a high level, the professor. You might be. <laughs> I'll take that. But you might be the only person on earth who thinks I play above the rim. I'm very. Uh, I, I, tend, I think I have like a four inch vertical at this point. <laughs> I think there could be a few people people in the chat who who agree. Darius, let's actually play a clip that Real Vision was very lucky to to uh, host a conversation between Mike Green of Simplify Asset Management and legendary hedge fund manager David Einhorn. In this clip, uh, David Einhorn talks about his thoughts of inflation. Uh, particularly about underinvestment in sort of cyclical stocks and how that leads to macroeconomic inflation. This is available on the Real Vision Essential tier. Let's take a look at the clip. 
There's a wide number of companies, call them old economy, you know, they're not the exciting things, that are choosing not to invest in their businesses. And that might be in energy exploration, it might be in shipping, it might be in you know, uh, manufactured products of various sorts or financial services of various sorts. And so the result is, is now we're seeing in the economy shortages because people haven't invested in, if you're in a mining company and you've been deprived of capital, you haven't invested in new mines. So now there's shortages of copper and coal and, and natural gas and oil and all kinds of other basic materials and agricultural related stuff too that is being caused as a result of the market just refusing to put a reasonable cost of equity on firms that are you know, a little bit more boring than the you know, software as a service company. This is why Personally, I'm not in the transitory inflation because I think the private sector decisions to allocate all the money to the fast-growing software-eating-the-world companies and not allocate money to companies that actually make things and provide other kinds of services that people find less exciting means now there's shortages of these things. And it's coming to bear in the economy. And the, the impact on people is, unfortunately, is, is, is that the lower you are on the income scale, the more you need energy, the more you need food, the more you need paper, the more you need things. A portion of your income. Uh, clothing, yeah. clothing, yeah. right? And yeah. the, these things have been underinvested in in a systemic fashion as a result of the market fashion towards you know, the, um, the, the more exciting technology the virtual, things. Yeah. So there is David Einhorn here. He's essentially saying that the you know, focus on technology stocks, the hot stocks, Tesla, Teladoc, choose your pick, that has resulted in a chronic underinvestment by, of energy companies, of, of mining companies, of companies that are sort of in paper mills that are involved in the, the, you know, the real physical world. And as a result, they're just buying back stock and paying out capital dividends instead of building out capacity. And that that is the root cause of inflation. And that is why David Einhorn says he is not in the transitory camp. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I'll start by saying this. Uh, I've had the great pleasure of meeting with David many times over the years, uh, and he's got a great team at Greenlight. He's one of the funniest people I've ever met, it, like easily top five funniest people I've ever met. What he's talking about right now is not funny at all because he's absolutely right in terms of the lack of capacity we've seen, right? Like you think about um, what, what tends to happen, you know, Warren Buffett sort of taught us all of this, but when capital flows into industries and crowds into industries, it reduces the return of the overall industry for obvious reasons, right? You, you know, you're chasing unproductive uh, projects and things of that nature. Well, the opposite is true, right? Like the overall returns in, this, in the commodity space have to go up as a function of the supply and demand of capital. And the reason those returns are about to go up, it's because the world is short things like crude oil, it's short things like natural gas, it's short things like uranium, it's short, it's short you know, durable energy supply. Because what we've known is what we've seen, obviously, and this is, I'm not telling anybody news in this regard, is this transition towards a green economy really did put the cart before the horse in terms of really sort of um, you know reducing our or increasing our reliance on unreliable renewable networks as opposed to you know sort of really cementing our ability to get off the old reliable, which is the coal, the nat gas, the energy, all the good stuff you know that goes straight to the veins. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned natural gas. That's been an absolute tear, really highlighting the lack of uh, su supplies. Uh, throughout the network. Uh, Darius, what do you think is, is going to be the, Im the impact of inflation on asset prices? Specifically, uh, Sohib asked a question from the Real Vision Exchange, who, uh, well, he has, a he has a question about the jobs report on Friday, but 
He specifically wants to know about uh, your thoughts on gold, which is typically thought of being as an inflation hedge. Well, the impact of inflation on asset prices is, is pretty clear. Like if we if inflation surprises to the upside, and more importantly, it doesn't just surprise the upside, but really shocks to the upside, kind of like what we saw in May, go back to that May, that April, no, it was the April uh, CPI report in mid-May. If we have something like that will occur over the next couple of months, and again, as I mentioned, the probability of that occurring is actually as high as it's been in a while, just given the forecasted delta score inflation, then you're going to see, going back to that market regime probability chart, we're going to see a very clear and obvious stagflation regime develop, and stagflation is clearly not good for risk assets. With respect to gold, however, you know you could potentially see a bottoming process in gold if we do go into real legit stagflation, because what it's likely to do is sort of you know uh, send um, uh, send real interest rates lower um, as a function of you know the rise in break evens and and you know at the bare minimum break evens that are moving up higher faster than nominals, but nominals that probably find a peak and, and start to roll over. Yeah, so nominals is the uh, interest rate that you see if you look up the 10-year Treasury yield, um, wherever, wherever it is. The uh, tips yield is the real yield that the, the uh, Treasury will guarantee you after what inflation proves to be. The break-even is the difference between the two, essentially what the market is pricing in, quote, for, for inflation. We're going to take another quick break, but we'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to the daily briefing. Let's get back to top analysis of today's markets. So, Darius, uh, you know, if I look at that chart of, uh, yeah, let's put that char- chart back up of your regime probabilities. Here's a, my simple analysis, which is, uh, Darius, the highest probability regime now is inflation. Gold yep. does well during inflation. Therefore, gold is a good investment right now. Why is that wrong? Uh, that, that is wrong unless that, that is wrong because if you have the view that I have the view, which is I don't know how sustainable this inflation regime is, right? Like how do we know this isn't really just being driven by, um, you know, obviously some pretty spooky moves in, in energy and that gas. But more importantly, the drama associated with the debt selling. And oh, by the way, we got back to back to back OPEX catalysts if you talk about the 20th, um, the 30th, and the 15th of this month. So, Sorry, Darius, um, what is OPEX catalyst? Uh, op- is options expiry. Yep, yep, yep. We've seen realized volatility in and around risk assets spike in and around these catalysts. Um, you know, it's been a repeatable pattern. So, you know, I, 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 I caution, you know, sort of running too far into this with respect to some of those more ancillary catalysts. But you know, I'll, I'll summarize by saying this, the market has gotten more risk on in recent weeks, either via covering shorts or just outright going long pro-cyclical exposures, either or it's the same outcome, right? There's, the market is now improperly positioned for a negative outcome. And so that means the vulnerability um, of, of, of experiencing a negative outcome is quite high. And so to the extent we see a trigger, that causes that vulnerability to be realized that that is an issue. However, the probability that we see growth bounce and actually a mini reflation trade in Q4 is still quite high as well. So um, I, I do believe that you know it doesn't necessarily pay to overly sort of extrapolate where the red line in this chart is at the current juncture. I think it does. You know, I think we we, we do need at least another week or two to, to gauge what you know these dynamics dynamics are going to do. We've got another question from Roger, also from the Real Vision Exchange, who says, "Question for Darius." Which sectors or factor styles work best when the dollar index is rising? Yeah, so the dollar tends to rise, um, you know, 
So part of the reason, let's take a step back. Part of the reason the dollar is rising is because the market is now starting to bet on a global growth slowdown that itself is being perpetuated by rising energy costs, an energy crisis leading to growth slowdowns. The dollar tends to rise against G10FX when that is the case. When, when fiscal and monetary authorities can no longer support growth abroad, that tends to be a very positive setup for the dollar, at least according to our grid asset market back test with sequence 25 years of monthly returns um, across volatile variance, things of that nature. Um, that's sort of what the that's the that's what the market is increasingly betting on today. Now, how sustainable again is that? Is 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 I, I think it's it's it depends on how fast energy prices continue to go up, and really depends on how fast uh, you know what monetary policymakers uh, abroad really kind of think about doing as a function of that. You know, this is why the British pound broke down recently. Talking about hiking interest rates into an energy crisis that's going to cause growth to slow is only going to compound the matter from a growth perspective and cause those flows to go from the UK economy to the US economy. That's exactly what's happening. You can just multiply that across the entire G10FX space right now. Mm. Uh, yeah, and so it's it's bearish for, uh, rising dollars bearish for the commodity complex. What sectors in the equity world is it bullish for? It doesn't necessarily have to be bearish for the commodity. It, it will be bearish for the commodity complex to some degree, right? Because again, what it's really pricing in is a global growth slowdown. And at some point, all these supply and demand imbalances that are, you know, obviously being perpetuated by, you know, elevated rates of growth, you know, coming out of COVID, you know, bouncing things of that nature, fiscal stimulus, all those things. If those things go away, then you don't have the same supply and demand imbalances. So eventually, you know, the rising dollar will catch up to commodity prices. But again, it's really just about the speed and understanding that, hey, look, the range of outcomes for Q4 and really into Q1 of next year is why, because again, you could have this very sanguine dynamic where growth bounces and inflation doesn't, you know, kind of continue at the same pace, and you can actually see inflation batted down on year over rate of change terms, and that's very positive for asset markets, you know, to the extent we see some resolution over the next couple of months on the debt ceiling and on the budget resolution. That's a very positive setup. That means that that will cause a Santa Claus rally of epic proportions. However, if we see, you know, net gas up 10, 20 percent a week crude oil up three to five percent a week from, you know, you know, from here on out, that's obviously going to keep the red line elevated on this chart here. So um, I think it's a fluid situation. You have to have some balance portfolio construction, in our opinion, uh, to deal with this. I think betting on one outcome over another is a very dangerous setup here at the particular juncture. Ralph Humphrey, also from the exchange, asks any view on natural gas? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's raging market. I mean, buy the dip. <laughs> I mean, here, here's the thing, right? This we know, investor consensus is not positioned for a dramatic, you know, issue with respect to an energy crisis. And so to me, the vulnerability, you know, if, if you want to make money in financial markets, you got to be positioned where the vulnerabilities are when the catalyst starts to arrive. And to me, I'm not saying the catalyst will arrive in terms of an energy crunch, but if it does arrive, people aren't positioned for that. So you know they're going to have to start to scramble and chase that. And more importantly, the algorithms, the bots, the robots, They'll start to chase that as well. I would argue that they've already been involved in the trade, and it's just only going to get worse if you know if we let's say what Putin said today in terms of ameliorating the um, Europe's natural gas crisis. If what he's saying is a load of malarkey, or you know, pick your silly word, then we're going to we're going to go down and go back back up and make new highs. And that to me is like that would be a really bearish telltale sign um, as it relates to stagflation risk. Yeah, and uh, probably pretty good for natural gas uh, uh, producers, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is a great opportunity, right? Like, you don't, I don't think it pays to be long a lot of energy companies. Uh, who's, who was talking about this? Uh, Harris Cooperman was talking about this on the Market Auto podcast on Friday. 
And I agree with them. It's like this is not a scenario where you want to be levered long, you know, the, the equities or the credits. Like this is a scenario where like, the, look, it's going to take a long time to bring a lot of supply on back, right? You've got Baker Hughes, great council. You know, they're still rising, but they're still relatively low cyclically. you got uh, U.S. crude stocks on a, on a cyclical low. Obviously, Europe's out of everything. You know, their cupboards are bare. China's panic buying crude oil and things like that. Like, like this could get a lot worse. And maybe that's what the market regime process is starting to signal, that it is incrementally getting a lot worse. I just don't know that it pays today to bet on it actually ending up really bad because there's a still reasonable probability that this all resolves itself. Yeah, I would I would add, though, that like if you had bought, you know, oil futures in, say, 1960 versus uh, a, a basket of energy stocks, you would have done much better with energy stocks. Like long term, you know, uh, buying uh, stakes in companies that produce natural resources is a much better investment historically than buying like the rights, buying the physical you know, assets themselves. Generally speaking, absolutely. Although I will say, you know, you look at the the relative performance of different asset classes, you know, during the kind of late 60s through 70s um, inflation episode, and you know, stocks were flat for about 12 years. But energy, obviously, more than you know, quintupled. Um, obviously, bonds got smoked. The dollar got smoked. Gold went up a decent amount. Like there are times where it does pay to bet on the commodity as opposed to the the producer, and then there are times to bet on the producer when it you know uh, relative to the commodity. I mean, unless you can tell me there's a better cash flow story and they're going to be smart, you know, like we're, you know, we're, we're, we're way on the other side of the, you know, kind of investment cycle with respect to a lot of energy, right? One, there's not a lot of capital availability. Everyone is ESG or thinks Facebook is a great business relative to, to Kinder Morgan or, or Schumberger. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, so that's kind of what David Einhorn is, is alluding to. It's look, man, we've dramatically undercapitalized the, the physical economy space in, 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 in lieu of the digital economy. Well, this is could potentially come back to us, and I, I disagree with him on the rate of change dynamics. On a, a year from now, inflation statistics will all be lower. Like that's what our projections have been saying. You know, they've been saying that. You know, really going back all year, really, and so that hasn't changed. But I do believe, as I talked about on Market Uddle, I've talked about several times in this this show. I've talked about in every podcast since the spring. Look, this trans the stationary mean of all inflation time series is transposing itself higher. Pick your country. I think in the U.S. We're going to start oscillating around, let's call it, two percent inflation on a headline basis, as opposed to one and a half. Um, you, you look at core PC, we're going to be oscillating around one and a half, as opposed to one. You know, things like that. That to me is a big difference, the big change with respect to asset markets. And quite frankly, this is what the Fed wants. Go back to their their their, their September FOMC meeting. They told you inflation was going to be above two percent on a core PC basis, as far as the eye can see, and they're going to supplement that by having a the slowest uh, a monetary policy tightening cycle in terms of the policy rate that we've ever seen. Talking about getting to a 1% uh, Fed funds rate by the end of 2023. It is October 2021. You know what I mean? Like, think about that. This is exactly what they want. These people, and I kind of joke about this, but I'm, I'm really not joking. They're actually trying to fix racism in the labor market with monetary policy. Like, we know they're going to be unsuccessful, but they're going to try, <laughs> especially if, you know, it's Powell or Brainerd next year. And they get flocked, they get surrounded by a bunch more doves. Yeah. Speaking of the Fed, uh, Omar has a question. Uh, how do you expect the Fed to respond policy-wide over the coming months based on current market conditions? Those conditions being the prospect of slower growth, a little bit of uh, uh, faltering in the equity markets, and the resurgence of surging commodity prices. Yeah, no, I don't think commodities and, and is a real big issue for them. 
I think the labor shortfall dynamics are what really matters, and and really the second run effects of inflation, right? Like commodity prices are, you know, they tend to stick their 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 their, their fingers in their ears and they close their eyes with respect to commodity prices. But it's really about the supply demand imbalances in the real economy that are filtering in the higher wages and the likelihood that you see those supply demand imbalances persist, right? Because you know you can make the case that okay, this the lower labor force participation rate is ultimately structurally lower for the growth rate of demand in the economy, and ultimately it's disinflationary. But in this sort of like now moment, right now it's inflationary for wages because you know there's a record number of job openings relative to the availability or the willingness of of people to work. Uh, that'll work itself out over time, and if people don't go back to work, obviously you have a lower uh, growth rate of income of national income. Um, than you did prior to the pandemic. So, you know, maybe that, that to me is a very difficult dynamic. I, I, I'd be remiss to pretend like I have an answer to how that, how the Fed is going to respond to that, or more importantly, how those dynamics are going to work themselves out. Yeah, that's the question that everyone wants to answer too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Darius, um, thank you so much for coming on The Daily Briefing. Great having you on, as usual, the professor of uh, Darius Dale, 42 Macro. Where can people find you on, on Twitter? Oh, I'm at uh, 42 Macro D Dale. Come check us out at 42macro.com. I don't just bloviate with, uh, with 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 big words and numbers. Uh, we do actually help investors manage, uh, you know, risk in, in financial markets with respect to our portfolio construction and all the puts and takes that go into that that process. So uh, thank you guys. Appreciate the platform. Appreciate connecting with your viewers, and I'll catch you back here next week. Definitely. And Darius, can we uh, also some people some on the comments were asking if we can put some charts uh, of that we showed today on Twitter. Would that would that be possible? Yeah, actually, yeah, it's it's already up. So go to the Real Vision Exchange. Um, and and I click on the link. I'll, I'll retweet my, my link, but I tweeted out the link to the Real Vision Exchange post I did that featured all these charts, so you guys can go check them out there. And if you want to see the charts updated every day in real time, subscribe. It's pretty cheap. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks, Darius. And great point. The link to that, I believe, is actually already in the description to this on realvision.com and on YouTube. Uh, Darius, thanks so much. Thank you to everyone watching. Have a great day. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.